This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Certainly, I think what um, bioethicists would be concerned about is uh, we don't want to create pathways where where um, people are paying for drugs that aren't safe or effective. Imagine you are a patient that is seriously ill and the standard clinical treatment is not working for you. You may want to try experimental drug products, still being investigated and not yet approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. What are your options? There are currently a couple of pathways. First, you could enroll as a participant in a controlled clinical research drug trial. These drug trials are reviewed by institutional research boards, or IRBs, and a key focus of an IRB is to review how well participants are being fully informed of the risks and benefits of the drug trial. But maybe you don't meet all the criteria and don't qualify for a drug trial. Then there are two other pathways you might pursue. The Food and Drug Administration has an expanded access program, and now there exists federal right-to-try legislation that was signed into law by President Trump in May of 2018. Both pathways are attempting to create more access and also navigate between ensuring patient safety and the ability of a patient with a life-threatening condition to have access to not-yet-approved approaches by the FDA. This change begs the question, what level of patient safety is appropriate and what is unhelpful bureaucracy? What are the risks and benefits of these different approaches to increasing patient access? Ashley Snyder, our summer intern at Ethics Lab in 2019, will be interviewing our guests. Ashley completed her master's in public health and epidemiology at the University of Colorado, Colorado School of Public Health, and in the fall will be pursuing her PhD in public health at the University of Utah. Ashley will be interviewing our two guests today. Carolyn Chapman is a faculty affiliate of the Division of Medical Ethics in the Department of Population Health in the New York University School of Medicine. Kelly McBride Folkers is a senior research associate of the Division of Medical Ethics in the New York University School of Medicine. Both are members of the Working Group on Compassionate Use and Pre-Approval Access. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Can you give us just a brief history of the right to try laws? Where did this policy come from? Prior to the passage of the federal right to try law in May of 2018, there was a movement that was started by the Goldwater Institute, which is a libertarian institution based out of Phoenix, Arizona. And they had a series of meetings with the Cancer Treatment Centers of America, who wanted a policy pass that would allow them to have more freedom in creating specific drug cocktails for their patients. And they felt that current FDA regulations prohibited them from being able to do this effectively. So the Goldwater Institute created the first um, model right to try law, which basically was meant for adoption in the States. 
And it said that a patient could access an experimental medicine um, by asking a pharmaceutical company for access to their product. And that FDA review of that protocol and institutional review board review would not be necessary as currently were and still are required by the FDA's expanded access pathway. So the first right to try law was passed in Colorado in 2014 and then very quickly diffused in the next um, three to four years around the country. And there are currently 41 state right to try laws on the books. However, the impact of those state right to try laws remained relatively uncertain. Federal law preempted some of the provisions of state right to try laws from being implemented. So, for example, the FDA retained authority over interstate commerce of all experimental drugs and all regulations of experimental drugs. The supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution basically prohibits any conflicting state law from taking effect if a federal law uh, says something different. So essentially, the right to try movement had two choices. Uh, One was to take this fight to court and try to have some sort of court decision um, change the law such that the purview of experimental drugs um, under federal regulation would be changed. But based on previous precedent, this this would have been likely to fail as the Supreme Court um, upheld a lower court decision that asserted that patients don't have a constitutional right to access experimental medicines. So really the next step was to try to get a federal law passed that would legitimize these individual state laws, give them teeth, if you will, and that would kind of get around these supremacy issues. And they were ultimately successful in doing that. After a couple of um, introductions into Congress, one in the 100 and um, really, I think the past three Congresses, 114th, 115th, and 116th. Are there ever patient situations where right to try is helpful? I think it's it's an alternative pathway. And so um, I think in the sense that right to try raised awareness of the opportunity to access um, investigational drugs outside of clinical trial settings. I think that was um, a, a benefit that I think people recognize no matter what their position is on the issue. I think that it, it sort of time will tell where this where this goes from here. Um, I know that we have concerns about that it will not be effective, given that there's already a pathway that it that is effective. So, in other words, it might it may not make meaningful difference. And then there's there's also c- concerns about downsides of the availability of the pathway if if um, it's used to lower the standards or um, allow companies to use it as a loophole or even potentially divert patients from clinical trials. Those might be some downsides. Is there a better middle ground than right to try? I really think that the the middle ground for right to try has existed for several decades, which is expanded access. Um, prior to uh, the right to try movement taking hold, the FDA has had an expanded, what's called an expanded access program since uh, formally in its regulation since 1987. And this process allows patients through their physicians to request use of experimental medicines. And uh, basically the FDA, if a company says yes to a request and allows a product to be used outside of a clinical trial, Um, The FDA will review that request, as I discussed a little bit earlier, 
And most, the vast majority of the time will allow that request to proceed. I think that expanded access really is a middle ground. It allows facilitated access to experimental medicines that are appropriate, um, that perhaps will have some medical benefit for patients. Right to try doesn't have the same safeguards in place to make sure that patients are getting access to medicines that actually have some chance of working for them. It's not a perfect system, but I think that there are ways that it can be improved. And my general attitude toward most systems that are in place for for patients is that if they aren't working properly, but they still have the potential to work properly, it's best to try to improve them, try to work out what's not working and try to work out the kinks in the system rather than dismantle the entire thing. And I think right to try has sort of been one step toward trying to weaken the FDA's authority over experimental medicines. But as Carolyn has said, the FDA exists to protect public health. It's there for a very good reason. And dismantling that system uh, piece by piece is not going to help anyone in the future. Thanks, Kelly. Carolyn, any thoughts? I would just add that um, it's interesting because with some other colleagues from the working group, um, particularly Allison Bateman House, who is co-chair of the working group, I've been um, working recently on some research to think about how uh, institutions and um, sponsors like companies will respond to um, the existence now of two parallel pathways and two choices, if you will, in in order to support um, a single patient who would like to access an investigational drug if they don't qualify for a clinical trial. So I think that that medical institutions um, and potentially sponsors do have some choices. One middle ground might be potentially that they would have the option of is to use the right to try pathway, but to impose certain stipulations on going through that pathway. So for example, right to try does not require FDA review and it doesn't require IRB review, but given there's no obligation to provide an investigational drug through the pathway, it seems consistent that uh, whoever would provide it could sort of sort of develop the circumstances under which they would provide it. So for example, a medical institution may, in order to protect the patients under its care, it may uh, want to have some kind of a secondary review system in place, even though that's not required if they do, you know, support requests through the right, right to try pathway. So for example, they could require institutional re- uh, review board review to review the request and check that the informed consent meets criteria that they would like to see met. Or they could develop their own system for oversight, um, perhaps requiring another way of checking that the request is in the patient's best interest. Carolyn, can you please give us a little background on the FDA's expanded access program? Basically, the FDA's expanded access program, I think, has been an evolution that's basically continuing. And I think in the earlier days, it was an informal process by which physicians could potentially approach the FDA to allow use of investigational drugs if patients were, um, you know, with life-threatening disease or serious diseases. Um, and it was sort of a more informal 
system where, you know, a physician might call up the agency and, you know, ask for their guidance and call up the sponsor, the manufacturers and, and try and arrange it that way. So, but it wasn't until um, 1987 that the agency sort of made uh, more formal regulations around um, uh, around treatment use for investigational drugs. And then in 2009, they um, made some revisions, and, and one of the revisions was to really clarify the use um, and the process for single patients. So they created um, three different categories of expanded access, one for single patients, one for immediate intermediate size groups, and one for more widespread or larger groups. In each of those criteria, the um, you know obviously the benefits of of such use have to be better than than the potential risks, and also there has to be sort of demonstration that the that the treatment use or the expanded access use will not interfere with the clinical development or the clinical trials of the investigational drug. And the 1987 regulations, by the way, were in the context of the AIDS crisis, where uh, AIDS uh, patients and advocates were sort of demanding earlier access to investigational drugs because there wasn't really anything available. And then um, we've we've seen some, in the context of the Right to Try movement, we've seen some small evolutions as well. So for example, in um, 2017, they no longer require full board IRB review upon physician request uh, for a single patient expanded access request, a single member or a designated member of the IRB can review that. As Kelly has said, they've simplified the forms. And just recently, they've announced the initiative uh, called Project Facilitate, which is a pilot program that's aimed to help physicians navigate the single patient expanded access process by being able to call into a center that is specifically designed to help them navigate the process to make it easier for them. Uh, and again, I think this this call center comes in the context of the right to try movement and trying to, if you will, be a good competitor to the right to try um, or a good alternative to the right to try and responding to the criticism that it's too difficult to navigate. What limitations still exist with expanded access? What are some of the major things that have come up where patients have said this needs to change? I think that overall the right to try movement has questioned the involvement of the FDA and and also the IRB, but those are aimed to protect the patient. And again, if you think about the agency in existence to protect the public health, on an individual basis, when these are investigational drugs, they may well have more information than is available to, you know, a physician who has the absolute best interests of, of his or her patient in mind. They just may not have all the information. In fact, a lot of the information that the manufacturers or the sponsors, the pharmaceutical companies have on their investigational project products is is confidential. So it's not available. Um, the FDA has more information available to it. They're bound by confidentiality obligations to, um, you know, through the regulations. They can't just go and share share everything they know about investigational products um, openly because of the competitive nature of the industry. 
but certainly they if you if you want to use an investigational drug they can help advise on whether they have any concerns about that they certainly have a have probably the best knowledge of the investigational product apart from the apart from the manufacturer and would have complementary knowledge because certainly they would have information about other products in the same um, category or class of drugs for example I think the criticism of the expanded access pathway has been about the bureaucracy and the layers of approvals and requests that that are in place those steps are in place to protect the patient. What was the FDA's response? Did the FDA show any pushback towards right to try? Commissioner Scott Gottlieb testified um, in a congressional hearing on the right to try bills. You know, in conjunction with his testimony, he basically announced the change in the IRB review process for single patient expanded access requests. So in other words, making it a little bit easier, the process a little bit easier, letting IRB review take place with one designated member as opposed to a full board. So that was one reaction that they had. Commissioner Gottlieb at the time also expressed concern that the definition or the eligibility criteria for the right to try law, which is a life-threatening condition, it could be construed very broadly because, for example, diabetes is life-threatening and he, he expressed some concern about that language, but um, that language was actually was retained in the um, final okay. final law. But overall, you know, I think that the FDA had did not come out um, squarely against it. And Commissioner Gottlieb said that he would obviously work what was passed. Yeah, essentially, the Right to Try Act of 2017 amends the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act, which has existed I think since the early 20th century, and it establishes the FDA's ability to uh, monitor the safety and then later on efficacy of drugs. What role does the FDA have? I think it's important to recognize that the agency, that the agency's role in protecting the public's health. And so that as in, as individuals and patients and caregivers who are facing obviously serious or life-threatening diseases, we, we want to have, you know, all options available to us. So I think it can be really difficult to have limits placed on our autonomy, especially in situations like that. But I think that it's also important to recognize that we all have an interest, even when we're talking about serious or life-threatening diseases, we all have an interest in having medicines that are actually safe and effective. And so it's this balance between making sure that what we, that, that these investigational drugs that are being developed, you know, it's very actually, it's really challenging actually to come up with a, a drug that that is approved because it's challenging to figure out um, w- which drugs actually will work to cure these diseases and the ones that ha- that still ha- do not have sufficient options or have significant unmet medical need. Nobody has figured it out yet. So that, that sort of demonstrates the challenge uh, involved. The agency is, the, is, is in place because as individuals, we don't have the resources or expertise to make sure that the drugs that are put on the market and for sale to treat all different kinds of patients have met safety and efficacy standards that that we all, as potential patients, patients or um, have lo- loved ones who are patients that we would we would hope and want to see for, for these drugs that come on the market. 
why are we placing limits on people getting access to these investigational drugs? Well, the first is because we're trying to protect that particular person, right? That's that's make sure that we have all the information, as Kelly pointed out, that it, that this is the right decision in the context of this particular person's care. And then the second goes to more societal interests in just having medicines that are safe and effective. So that is a little bit harder to articulate and understand, particularly in the context of, of serious or life-threatening diseases. But still, I think we can all agree that even in the context of serious and, and life-threatening diseases, we want to have medicines that we that we know are working. And so that's also a balance. And I think that's been something that is harder to maybe talk about, but it, I think it's it has to be sort of acknowledged and understood as, as one of the factors Definitely. that goes into this debate. Carolyn, can you give us a little explanation as to the ethical considerations surrounding health equity with this law? Sure. So in terms of some of the um, equity considerations, I think that since everyone acknowledges that under certain circumstances, um, patients with serious or life-threatening illness should or could access investigational um, products, there's there's um, a concern about making that option available to everyone. So that so in other words, there's a responsibility to raise awareness that this is a potential option um, that that is available now through either the FDA's expanded access pathway or through the right to try pathway, but not everybody knows about it. And um, so again, we've talked about how the right to try path, uh, the right to try movement did definitely raise awareness about this option. So I think that people can definitely agree that the, that helped in terms of providing some equity in access, um, because if you don't know about an option, you can't use it. And I think that that also goes, the same holds true for physicians who, you know, may, some may, may be more familiar with FDA's expanded access pathway than others. That's one aspect of equity. And then the other aspect of equity is cost. So in both the expanded access pathway and the right to try pathway, companies have the right to charge for, but only for direct costs for these investigational products. So they're not permitted to make a profit off of these products. And if you can think, the reason for that really is that they shouldn't be allowed to profit from products that aren't proved safe you know, and or effective. Companies should not necessarily also um, have to be obligated to provide products, you know, at their cost. So there's there, there's that balance. The issue that comes into play with the differences between the two pathways is that although both require companies only to charge for direct costs, the FDA having a bit more involvement, obviously, with the FDA's expanded access pathway, um, there's a little more clarity on on how the, um, the companies demonstrate that, that they're fulfilling that requirement where there's maybe a little bit of confusion around how that um, they would be demonstrating that they're only charging for direct costs and the right to try pathway. So where that comes into play f- with respect to equity is since we all agree that under certain circumstances, patients with serious or life-threatening diseases have an interest in accessing investigational drugs, well, if pay- if companies charge, then there's an equity issue if some if only some patients can 
pay for the, for that opportunity, then that becomes, you know, sort of an, an issue of justice and fairness. If only the rich people can, you know, if, if this if this pathway is only available to people with uh, who are wealthy or, or have a lot of money to, to pay for these drugs, then that becomes an issue of fairness. So one of the reasons I, I know Kelly and I, um, in, in an article in the Hastings Center Report, we, we explored this issue a little bit and discussed how the expanded access pathway, because of the oversight involved with both the FDA and the IRB and, and ensuring that these are appropriate uses and sort of restricted uses to, to cases where it's definitely justified that perhaps, you know, we should have insurance mechanisms pay for that. But again, I think on a broad scale, um, we don't insurance uh, for many of us doesn't even pay for approved therapies. So this is obviously, you know, a difficult situation. So that so that's there's a lot of complexity in this. And certainly I think what um bioethicists would be concerned about is uh we don't want to create pathways where <laughs> where um people are paying for drugs that aren't safe or effective. Thank you. And one, I guess I'll say final question at this point that I have for both of you. If you could give one piece of advice to a healthcare provider who has a patient come in and say, I want to use this treatment because I can use right to try, what advice would you give that provider? The important thing for physicians to do is kind of utilize the concepts of shared decision-making, which I'm sure many members of the audience and the, the people, uh, discussing this issue here today are very familiar with, make sure that we understand why a patient is choosing this option. Are they doing so because they are equipped to be able to do this? Is their family equipped to handle the demands or other changes that might have to be made to accommodate this kind of treatment? Is this something that's being done with the a full information available. And I think a physician is able to facilitate that conversation really about the choice to pursue this kind of treatment is really important in these scenarios. Thank you, Kelly. And Carolyn, do you have any thoughts? I think the physician can look at the different options, the right to try pathway um, and the FDA's expanded access pathway. I certainly think that there are uh, you know, advantages and disadvantages to, there are, there are some differences between the pathways. The physician can look at those differences um, with the patient and talk about how the involvement of the FDA may be beneficial to both of those parties, both the physician and patient, and and factor that in with uh, sort of the additional burdens in terms of um, application process. And you know, I think Kelly and I have made it clear that we we do think that the involvement of the FDA is important um, in terms of patient protection. Appreciation to Ashley, our intern, and her guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.